I'm Nick Newton, joined by Will Miles. Welcome to Stand Up and Holler on this week's episode. Napier lands another big-time arm at quarterback. The Gators announce a homecoming date. And will there be an opponent for future spring games? Will and I will discuss an idea that Andy Staples wrote in this week's Athletic. Uh, and we'll wrap up previewing Tall Tales, a mini series that will be released by Reading Reaction on YouTube starting next week. Will, how's it going, man? Yeah, it's going well. Baseball season's in full swing, so busy with that. But, uh, you know, and then you and I are obviously working on the preseason magazine as well. So a lot of stuff going on. Certainly the spring game coming up in a couple of weeks. Going to see the transfer portal open up again. So things are about to pick up. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah, not much free time on either one of our sides, I, I imagine. There, <laughs> Not with the tall tales coming, man. And and uh, <laughs> it's finally getting warm up here. So, you know, you guys have all been enjoying the, win- yeah, the warm weather all winter long. And now it's about to get unbearably hot. And where I am, I finally got to wear short sleeves out at, uh, you know, an outdoor function today. So it was fun. <laughs> That's good, man. Congratulations. Congratulations. That's on really all up. we have to, to look forward to, man. I'm telling you. <laughs> all right. Well, we got plenty of looking forward to in terms of quarterbacks in the coming years because in addition to DJ Lagway, from the class of 2025, Billy Napier has landed another big-time quarterback with Austin Simmons from Pahokee. A lefty, Will, a lefty quarterback. Not that You just don't see many lefties these days, man. So four stars, class of 2025, like I said, had offers from programs like Miami and Texas A&M, many programs around the country. Uh, he is listed at six foot three, 180 pounds, and he is also expected to play baseball for the Gators. He said what put Florida over the top was uh, the connection uh, was the coaches, Coach Napier and Coach O'Hara. Simmons told Gators Online. They really looked. Uh, they really looked like they really understand the quarterback position play. As soon as I walked in the building and sat down with them, yeah. Well, look. I mean, this is this is a big deal for Napier. We've obviously um, gone through the details of the Rashada commitment and then decommitment, or at least the NIL stuff. We've gone through the DJ Lagway aspect of things. We've talked a lot about how you know it's another shot at the it's another shot at a star when you bring in a guy with this kind of profile, but. It's interesting. He's 56th ranked overall, 96.56 on the 24-7 ranking. And so when you look at the overall Florida history at quarterback, that puts Simmons 10th overall since I think it's 1990 is what I was looking back at for quarterbacks who've come in on the, on the recruiting ranking. So just behind Felipe Franks in terms of where he is. But what I will say is that while he's ranked 56th overall and slightly below Franks, the completion percentage numbers, the yards per completion numbers make me think that Simmons is a better prospect. And then you look at the fact that, you know, okay, well, is it because he doesn't have arm strength? Now nah, he's out there throwing no hitters on the baseball team. So he's got a cannon too. And, and so I suspect he's going to go flying up the board as we get closer and closer to 2025, assuming that's the class that he ends up staying. And there's been some discussions about potentially reclassifying. Apparently he's already graduated from high school. <laughs> Eligible so, to graduate from high school. <laughs> well, and, and the thing, the thing that's really interesting is if you look at his actual high school profile, he completed 67% of his passes last year, had 13.1 yards per attempt that's really really good and when you look at sort of the history of quarterbacks in that sort of space there's maybe eight or nine guys who who sort of fit between 66 and 69 percent completion percentage and there's a few like Jarek Guarantano and Colson Yankoff who went to Washington and Ricky Town who went to USC who fit the completion percentage profile but what you find is once you get to that completion percentage it's a question of dinking and dunking so Ricky Town averaged 9.1 yards per throw in high school Guarantano averaged 8.4 
once you start getting up into those higher numbers, and remember, um, Simmons is at 13.1 for his sophomore year in high school. Yeah, we're talking about sophomore yeah. in high school. This is this outstanding tape, too, if you but, give him a watch. So Jake Browning averaged 11.0, the quarterback who led Washington to the playoffs. Dorian Thompson-Robinson, who's had a really good run there at UCLA, averaged 12.8. Trevor Lawrence averaged 12.9. Jacob Eason averaged 10.6 in that 67 to 69% completion percentage. So, you know, look, if he had a junior and a senior year, wow. like he's had his freshman and his sophomore year, because he completed 66% of his passes his freshman year, he completed 60% of his passes as an eighth grader playing varsity football, right? So this is a kid who's going to go flying up those charts as people look at him even more and more because you you mentioned it before we came on here. When you look at his film, he's got really good arm strength. He's got really high completion percentage, and he's going downfield a lot. This is a prospect that I think everybody can get behind, and I think the upside that I didn't necessarily see with Rashada. I thought Rashada was maybe like a 25% shot at turning into a star, based on where he was. Um, I thought a guy like Felipe Franks was sort of like in the 10% shot of turning into a star a guy like Graham Mertz. When he came out of high school was sort of in that same 25% range. This is a guy who I'd put in like a 35 to 45% shot that he turns into a star. Now the question is going to be who starts now, right? You got Lagway, you got Simmons. Um, obviously if Simmons reclassifies even to 2024, um, you know, that he's going to be competing with Lagway. The good news is, is that those guys both seem to be on board and both seem to understand that they're they're going to be in a battle and that that battle is going to be good for them. So I'm excited about this one. This is a really, really, really positive thing for Billy Napier. And one of the things that, that you can do to overcome recruiting gaps is have a really, really strong quarterback. You, you know, if you've got Kyle Trask back there, you go eight and four, even with a completely awful defense in 2020. And so eight wins is basically the floor if they can get an elite quarterback and 12 wins or 13 wins is the ceiling if they have an elite quarterback. And so you got to get excited about guys who who make that floor and ceiling a possibility in the not-too-distant future. If you watch his tape, he has – Excellent control on the ball. First off, the other thing that stands out when you watch his tape is Pahokie's just got playmakers all over the place, which is not shouldn't be shocking because you, you talk about that region of the state has produced. I mean, Fred Taylor came from Belglade down there, and Pahokie was Anquan Bolden at Florida State, who he played quarterback at Pahokie, and Simmons actually tied his passing records this year. So that I mean, that's a name you're talking about. That's going back about. 25 uh, years here ago in high school, Will. 25, maybe even we're getting close to getting close to 30 years in Anquan Bolden being in high school, no? So that's that record has stood for some time. So this kid came in and did this as a sophomore. This isn't a junior or senior prospect doing that. Think about where you were at your sophomore year of high school for anyone that played varsity sports. So incredible accomplishment. Not to mention the fact that when you watch his tape, his his throws are like when on the deep ball, he's got a nice high arc on it. He can zip it in. Saw a couple slant routes on the goal line too, where he's just he's got a quick release with that left arm. Like they were in a couple of uh seams up the middle there to either a slot receiver or a tight end where he just would it was snap one, two, step, get it out. He he can do it anything cross the field. I saw him make a throw from one hash mark to the opposite numbers. I mean, like 10 yards down the field, this kid's got an arm. This kid's got an arm and, and he's going to give Lagway a run for his money. I still like Lagway's tape a little better. I think Lagway's a stronger prospect. Of course, we're talking about a kid that's a, a full year ahead of Simmons, which in high school is a big deal. A lot of time for development, which brings me to my next question, Will. 
A lot of chatter about this guy having enough credits to graduate. And will he reclassify? He technically could if he wanted to reclassify into the class of 2023, skip two years of high school. I, I can't think of another example where that's happened. Uh, two years, maybe one year, but two years. And certainly guys reclassify. They come in in, in the, uh, you know, the winter quarter all the time the, in the spring semester. They, they do that all the time for what could have been their the spring semester, of their senior high school years. They come in to get in spring ball. But man, two years early, Will. Is that something you want to see or do you, would you like to see this guy stay in high school for another year, get some development, and he's only going to get better as time goes by? Or would you rather just get him in so we got him? What, what, there's ups and downs to each side. I mean, given that Florida has um, open roster spots, the quarterback position, I think the question is who can you get in the transfer portal? Right. And if the answer is, and this is sort of, I wrote an article a couple of weeks ago about why not Max Brown as a starter. And the point was give a guy a shot who might have a high ceiling because you kind of already know what you have with Jack Miller and with Graham Mertz. And what you have is a guy who's probably, you know, those guys are probably going to cap out at nine wins max. If everything goes right, you're probably nine and three, which is a good year, but I'd actually sacrifice. I'd go seven and six or six and seven again. If we've got a guy that we're comfortable with at the quarterback position and say, this kid's going to be good for the next two years. And then he's going to the NFL like, I think at that point you go, absolutely. Like, I want the kid in there. Now, it, it's always a question, and this is something that you, you do have to wonder, is when when a guy goes in there and he's younger than all of his teammates, that if, that impacts chemistry. And then w- if you put him in too early, does that impact his confidence and does that impact his ability his ability to play long-term? And, you know, you see that a lot where you redshirt a guy as a freshman just because you want to make sure that you don't put him in a situation where he's not necessarily ready. I think the only way you want him to reclassify is if you want him to play, right? Why reclassify to 2023 unless you're going to play him? Are you really going to redshirt him? as a as a reclassification to 2023 and then have an open QB battle, basically. I mean, I suppose it gives him an extra six months in the system, right, before Lagway comes in. But, I, you know, I'm reminded of situations like Jacoby Brissett and Jeff Driscoll, right, where you've got two guys who are about equivalent. I think they wound up – I mean, Driscoll had one good year, but, you know, they sort of – I would say Brissett actually wound up being the better prospect of the two. And you end up in a situation where one guy has to leave to get playing time. One year of separation prevents that from happening really, because, you know, even if the guy plays for three years, if Simmons comes in in 2025, then, then, you know, he's got a couple of years afterwards. And I think the other thing is, is we got to talk about realistically, where is Florida going and what are they building to? And I think having him in 2023 probably doesn't help you build to where you want to go. It's good that it staggers the quarterbacks a little bit, I suppose. But, I mean, I'm looking at this saying, based on where Napier has already recruited, based on what he's doing with the youth movement, based on how he's trying to build the program, I think that patience is something we're going to have to give him to see if he's able to build it. And if you're going to take a patient approach, then take a patient approach with your quarterbacks. Don't rush it. Don't get them in. Because you're going to, I mean, the fan base is either going to have to be patient or they're going to be disappointed because the reality is, is that that bump class that they just had is middle of the road in the SEC. And usually in the third year, that's where those, the third year for the coach, that's where that bump class really starts to step in. They're going to have to have a bunch of hits there to really have an elite team. I'd rather sort of build slowly at this point and just make sure you're solid at quarterback four or five years from now, as opposed to trying to rush somebody in. 
I, you look at the decision too, and with Lagway coming in next year, and you go, well, what's the appeal for Simmons? Simmons got to come in here with a guy like Lagway coming in. But you look at the top programs across the country, Will. Jack Miller, good example. This guy was a highly touted recruit coming out of high school, went to Ohio State to compete. You've seen situations where Joe Burrow, the reason why he left Ohio State, he lost the quarterback competition to a guy named Dwayne Haskins. And he he got out of there. He got his chance somewhere else. So LSU ended up working out fine. The point is these top programs stack talent. It's the way it's always been. Alabama, how many people go in and out of Alabama these days? So if you can't get on the field in the first couple of years, a lot of these guys transfer out, they go find an opportunity elsewhere. And that's that's been proven time and time again. So it's good that Napier is starting to build that they're starting to stack that talent where we, we're going to have options this year. Look at the quarterback situation we have without Simmons this year. We, we're not loving it. We're, we're not loving the quarterback situation this year. We're not going to be having this conversation in the next several years. Well, I think that's the key, right? Is that if you have Simmons and Lagway competing for the position, regardless of who loses and if somebody transfers, you've got an elite level quarterback, right? Because if you figure that they're both about a 50% shot and I would put Lagway in like the 70% range to turn into a star, I think I said I'd put him, put uh, Simmons in the 35 to 45%. So if Simmons beats him out, then you know he's better than a guy who was really a, almost a can't-miss prospect. And if Lagway beats him out, you had a can't-miss prospect, right? And so um, you're okay with somebody transferring. That's the whole point. Yeah. The whole point of recruiting at an elite level, recruiting elite players, is that you want them to compete. And then inevitably you're going to have injuries every once in a while. You're going to have guys who don't qualify academically, or you're going to have guys who are culture problems, or you're going to have guys who get arrested, or you're going to have guys who, you know, for whatever reason they transfer out because they're not happy. So stacking, stacking elite prospects at all of these positions is critical. We've seen it at Georgia. We've seen it at Alabama. We've seen it all over at Ohio state. We've seen it all over the place and Florida's going to have to be one of those schools. So bringing in Simmons allows you to do that. And the last thing I would say is this is a dude from Florida. And we've been talking for two years now about Billy Napier needing to draw a circle around the state mm -hmm. and really announce his presence of authority in the state. And this is a guy who's a top 10 prospect in the state of Florida. He's a top quarterback prospect in the state of Florida. This, these are the kinds of guys that you have to bring in. I was writing something the other day about Steve Spurrier and his era and his bump class had like, had like six all American and like 13 all secs that came from that class. But all those dudes were from Florida. Like just about every one of them was from Florida. And so that is the challenge for Napier. And so Simmons is part of that. So going out of the state for a guy like Lagway, that's fine, but you're going to have to have 90% of your elite talent come from the state and to not allow a guy like Simmons to go to Texas or USC or, or Georgia or Clemson or Notre Dame or Ohio state. Like that's a big deal. Cause that's, this is a guy that everybody in the country wants mm -hmm. and Florida targeted him early. And we've seen what Lagway has been able to do in terms of recruiting. Jeremiah Smith was there. It's not a coincidence. They had DJ Lagway there that same weekend when, when the, the, the number two ranked player overall, who's a wide receiver was there for an official visit. They're going to be able to do the same thing with Simmons, right? Whenever he decides what class he's going to commit to or that he's going to classify to, he's going to be able to be there for visits when they've got the elite prospects they're hosting and they're going to be able to build relationships before they ever come there. And now if he comes in 2025, you've got two years for him to be the Pied Piper leading a giant class coming into Gainesville. So I don't think you can understate how big of a deal this is. Great, great news this week with the commitment of Austin Simmons out of Pahokee down there in South Florida. Well, let's move on here to four bits. 
Vanderbilt has been announced as the homecoming game. Not not a total shock there. October 7th just fell on the right weekend too. So, hey, normally Vanderbilt, you, you look at this type of homecoming game as a bit of a snooze fest, but coming off a loss, let's get some revenge. Wouldn't mind. Two years ago, I believe we played Vandy on homecoming. I think that was a nice 42 nothing win. Like to see, like to see us get back to form against Vanderbilt this year. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, homecoming is is there are a lot of distractions during homecoming, so there's a reason why you want a cupcake when you're doing that sort of thing. But you know, look, I mean, there will have already been the game at Utah, the game versus Tennessee at Kentucky, and now you're sitting there versus Vanderbilt at home, and then McNeese and Charlotte in there too. Now, look, if Florida can go in and maybe pull off a win at Utah probably lose to Tennessee. I think Kentucky with Levis gone, I actually expect them to be better with Will Levis gone. So, you know, you may be in a situation where the the Vanderbilt game really is sort of a fulcrum because you're then at South Carolina the week after. There's been a lot of chatter about Spencer Rattler and what he was able to do the last three or four games. So Florida's schedule next year is pretty rough. And so this is one that they're going to have to get. And obviously it's great that when you've got – um you know, when you've got the homecoming and the vibe and sort of the buzz in the community, when those sorts of things happen, it's nice to have that stuff. And, it, and typically those games don't end up at noon, right? You don't usually do the homecoming game at noon. So um, hopefully this is one of those, it's like a three thirty or a seven o'clock on ESPN and, you know, people get lubed up before the game and yeah, we want a little bit of revenge against Vanderbilt, right? I mean, that sounds ridiculous, but you know, I, I, it's actually like a revenge tour because you got Tennessee, then Charlotte, then Kent- at Kentucky versus Vanderbilt. That's oh. the revenge tour, man. Like, and it sucks that that's our revenge tour. So <laughs> that's a rough so, revenge tour right there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, look, I think because the back half of the schedule, I mean, Georgia at Arkansas or versus Arkansas at LSU yeah. at Missouri versus Florida State. Like, you're going to have to, they will have to take care of business early. Mm hmm if they're going to have a successful season next year. And so, um, you know, the Utah and Tennessee games, I think we both sort of look at that and say Florida's probably going to be an underdog in both of those. Though the Utah game is kind of kind of depend on rising. Um, McNeese and Charlotte, that'll be a win. At Kentucky, Florida hasn't had a, lot, a whole lot of success at Kentucky recently. And so that Vanderbilt game may be, you know, you may be looking at like to get to three and three before you go to South Carolina and then have Georgia. Um, if that's the case, it's an important game. So, look, I mean, yeah. Homecoming, you typically pick a cupcake. Vanderbilt's about as cupcakey as you can get on Florida's schedule this year, other than the two real cupcakes. And so uh not a surprise they'd make that one homecoming. But you're to your point, if we're talking about a bowl game this year, this is an absolute must-win. The key to the 2023 season is no stumbling where you should take care of business. And I think well, we talked about a little bit of that going into 2022, where it's like just focus on the areas. It'd be great to go to Utah and beat Utah. It'd be great to get back to beating Tennessee this year. It'd be great to pull an upset over Georgia. Some of those games are going to be more of a stretch this year. But take care of business at home against Vanderbilt on homecoming. You can't mess around with these types of games. And uh, that that's the, that's going to be the defining – these types of games will define the season. And I, I don't – I don't overlook Vandy at this point. And like you said, a revenge tour that consists of Kentucky, Tennessee, and Vanderbilt. Uh, it usually means the last season didn't go <laughs> nearly how you wanted it to. So it would be nice to see uh, the Gators just absolutely laid on Vandy here for homecoming this season. Yeah, well, I mean, look, I think I think everybody understands where Florida wants to be. And they were not there last year. And that meant that you had losses to Kentucky and Vanderbilt and some other folks. Um, that can't happen this year. Napier is going to like the next step for Napier 
is to win the games against traditional, not doormats in the SEC, but traditional lower tier teams in the SEC. And look, I've I've harped on recruiting a lot, and I've criticized the recruiting, but that's in reference to Georgia and Alabama. That's not in reference to Vanderbilt. And so Florida should have plenty of talent. Florida should have plenty of ability, and Florida should have plenty of motivation when they go up against Vanderbilt, Kentucky, Missouri, Arkansas, those teams. There's there's eight or nine wins here if they have the appropriate attitude, if they come to play every day, and if the quarterback play is less variable than it was last year. That's asking a lot, but you know, hey, it's it's uh, it's the expectation of Florida. In fact, it's sort of the baseline expectation. Two straight losses to Vanderbilt. Ooh, boy, is the heat going to start <laughs> rising pretty quickly? That would be a rough homecoming Saturday if that were to happen. All right, let's move on here to six bits. Andy Staples from The Athletic wrote a really interesting article this week. He was writing it based on some comments that Hugh Freeze had made where he was talking about the nature of the spring games where you look at some rosters and they don't even – have enough players. You, what was it under McElwain? I believe was it the yeah, first year no McElwain? Yeah, where the, there wasn't enough offense alignment, where they just kind of ran a glorified scrimmage, which is essentially what a lot of the spring games are. Uh, I'll I'll let you mention your favorite uh, spring game moment from the Mullen era too. Will you always like bring this up? I'm I'm blanking. What, what's what, your favorite moment about guys coming off the sideline running routes? I feel like you've oh, that more than a few times. <laughs> yeah, that 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 was uh, kind of embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, I, so I, I I'm looking at this, and I actually think this is a good idea here. Uh, Hugh Freeze put it out there. He, he was talking about hit Auburn, Alabama, UAB, Troy, some sort of combination of those guys playing the Troy UAB. He said even Alabama State, I don't care, just someone else to get a draw and come in on campus. And Staples put out there, he talked about high schools play spring games, NFL scrimmage other teams in fall camps. Division two football actually just passed something where they can play spring games against other schools. So that they just passed that in division two in the NCAA. So this could be coming in the future at some point. It's certainly a money making opportunity. Because if you look at it, maybe each state can handle it differently, too. And maybe they say, hey, we want you to play in state. Hey, uh, Florida A&M and Florida A&M and FSU, you guys pair off. You could pair off Florida with like FAU or FIU or something like that. Miami with one. Of these, well, maybe might keep Miami and FIU apart. Uh, we've seen those guys get after it a few times. But, well, you know, we can figure out the combinations le- later. But you could keep it in state to keep it easy and keep the travel costs down. I think that would be more interesting than watching the orange versus the blue. And you certainly would be able to read a little more into your team. The only problem with that is you get the, the lower team would probably be going all out and it probably would not be a good day at the office. If you're the better school, if you know, if you're Florida playing FAU, they probably got their starters in and Napier's getting a look at the third stringers. It, it, it would probably be pretty difficult to have preseason games in college football as a fan. I would think. I mean, so, so it, it's an interesting idea. The uh, the thing I react to first is that college football in general is like the most risk averse organization in the entire world. <laughs> like like they've managed to figure out how not to pay the players for like 100 years as they turned this into a billion dollar business. And so there there are like lawsuits going through where they know they're going to lose and they're not making changes because they can maximize revenue and because they're resistant to change and they're risk averse. And so that's the first thing. The other thing is, is that we just got done with the World Baseball Classic and Edwin Diaz, the closer for for the Mets, you know, mm-hmm. tore his patella and, and then uh, 
Um, Altuve for the Astros got hit in the hand and broke his hand. He's out for a couple of months. And all you heard from people in the media was, oh, my God, like, look at what what happens when you have like the live games as opposed to the spring training. Now, they completely ignored all the injuries that happened during the spring training games. Those guys were playing that were essentially meaningless. But my, my point is, is that it's really hard to disprove a negative, right? So when when Diaz gets hurt, it's hard to disprove that his patella wouldn't have snapped you know, three days later at a, at a spring training, like, was it ready to go? Or was it just that it was something that happened? That was a freak accident. Um, well, he probably think, wouldn't be celebrating a win on the Mets. So. Well, maybe, but, <laughs> but, but what, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that I think the, the risk aversion is the thing they're going to have to get over. Right. Because yeah, you can set your rules and you can say your quarterback can't get hit and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But there's a different intensity when you play a real game, even versus a scrimmage. And, um, you know, art, do you really want to expose your players to that um, for what's the reward? Like if you go out and you beat FAU by, you know, a thousand, everybody's like, well, you're supposed to do that. If it ends up close, everybody's sitting, oh my God. Now, again, I think it gives you a little bit more visibility to your team. Um, but I, I have never once thought that programs did things specifically for the fans. <laughs> like that just has not been sort of the hallmark of college football. And so I, I, if they can find a way to turn it into a revenue generator, I'm sure there will be a way to do it. Um, I'm, I'm just, I, I struggle with the fact that most organizations are risk averse and the first time somebody got injured, I feel like they would end it at that point. And, and, you know, freeze would be the first one, right? He goes out there, his quarterback happens to get hit in the knee. Um, all of a sudden he's out for the whole year. He's like, Oh, this is a terrible idea. Like, why are we doing this? Right? Like it's really easy to propose things. It's really hard to sort of look and see what the unintended consequences are. And, and, and siphon that. I think the the interesting part in Staples' article was his point was that as they go to a twelve team playoff, there's going to be more scheduling of elite teams, which is going to leave these smaller schools out right. of having those cupcake games where they make a lot of money. But this has sort of been my point all along when I've talked about like splitting into what's essentially like a forty or a fifty team super league, which is that just dispense with the formalities like Ohio state will compete for a national championship almost every year. Ohio will not. And so let's just be honest about it and say, look, we can pay Ohio a million dollars to come to the big house and get their butt beat. Or we can just have, uh, hold on. The big house is Michigan dude. Oh, uh, well, whatever. It's, it's all the same thing. It's big 10. It's not real football, Relax. but <laughs> the horseshoe, the horseshoe. <laughs> That's awful. <laughs> no, whatever. It's all the same thing. Yeah, sorry. You can pay for Michigan Tech to come get their butt beat at the big house in, in Michigan. Go. Um, but you know, what does that really do for Michigan? And that's the thing that I think is gonna probably end up making this um difficult to execute is there's a lot of benefit to Florida Atlantic or FIU or Florida AM or something like that. What's the benefit to Florida State? What's the benefit to Florida? Like you're going to either have to find a way. I mean, it's not as though the state, I mean, unless you're going to fill the stadium and unless the television contract is significant for that sort of stuff, then how's it any different than, I mean, and that's real, the TVs where they make the money anyway. Mm-hmm. So how's it any different than the spring game in terms of what you sold? Like you have to have a product to sell. And if just a blowout over, over Wofford is what you're selling. But eh. they do that in September already. Will 
that I already exists. And that, that's your that's your point with uh, you know, Staples Staples well, did mention that where he said this is a great opportunity as we get to a point where there's gonna be more and more disparity between this is a rich get richer type of system that's going on in college football. He said it's a great opportunity to kick a million dollars down to a, a FB, F, you know, FBS kicking a million over to an FCS team yeah. to help out an in-state school or something like. See though, but that's like that's that. but but that's the problem, right? Is so right now they pay those schools a million dollars because it helps them make the playoff, right? The reason that you pay the Citadel to come in the week before you play FSU is because that helps you mm-hmm. accomplish your goals. If this spring game doesn't help you accomplish the goals, then it ain't worth a million bucks because it's not worth a million dollars to the TV subscribers. And if you looked at like the SEC, if if the SEC just came in and said, we're going to play a 12 game SEC schedule, ESPN bid on it. And that's all we're going to do. And we're going to be completely insular. ESPN would be like, awesome. That's that's like exactly what we want. And if they said, we're going to play eight SEC games just like we have always, and we're going to schedule the two two or three cupcakes, those two or three cupcakes don't do the ratings the same way everything else does. They're just sort of interspersed amongst everything. So Florida fans watch when Florida's playing Eastern Washington, but nobody else is watching Florida play Eastern Washington. And I think that's sort of the point is that in terms of the – like if you th- look at the – I don't know, $300 million that ESPN pays the SEC every year for this new contract – how much of that is because of the Eastern Washington games and those sorts of things. And so if those things don't help them accomplish their long-term goals towards a national championship, why take the risk and why spend the money? I'd rather spend a million. I mean, if I'm a, if I'm an organization, I'd rather spend a million dollars on an NIL deal than I would getting, um, you know, getting Florida A&M into the swamp. Like it would be great for Florida A&M. I just don't know what it does for Florida overall. Um, other than maybe, you know, maybe you're a little bit sharper because you sort of learn a couple of things about your team. But, you know, what did we learn last year when Anthony Richardson touched torched Eastern Washington? Other than when he's not playing against like Georgia, he's really, really good. Like I, we just, did, I don't feel like we learned anything from that cupcake. We watched it, we analyzed it. Helps us. I don't know that it helped Florida. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I look at it too. It, which coach would be the first one? To get fired for losing his spring game, <laughs> uh, I, Brian, I hate, Brian Harson. Brian Harson. Yeah, <laughs> I love the NFL. I watch every Sunday the second it kicks off till till the second it's done. I, I love the NFL. I hate preseason football. I don't watch one of them. I hate preseason football with a passion. I've gone to like my family. We went to Jags games all growing up, and man, the Jags during the regular season, there's plenty of seasons where they look like a, a team that played during the preseason, but the preseason games were just, just, it's almost unbearable to watch some of those games. And I still flip them on will because I, I love football that much. And I just, I, I will flip it on to have it on, but just, you don't get much. And there are guys who just tear it up in preseason, like a, a receiver. You're like, Oh, maybe that could be our third guy. We need a third receiver to step up this year. That's our guy. He'll go off in the preseason. You never hear from him the rest of the year. And then and by the just, end of the year, you're like, oh, my fantasy team, he killed it. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're like, oh, I think I got a dark horse. I'm going to snag this guy. It's going to be a flyer late. Nope. Doesn't work out. So, yeah, I, I don't know how much you would actually, how much value it would bring, like you said. And uh, I don't know how much coaches would want to deal with that. I because mean, Napier would probably be more interested in getting his third string guys work. But if we're down by two touchdowns, think of the Sanford game, right? A couple of years ago, you're down to, to a team like that. I, 
uh, people aren't going to care that it's the spring. I, they, I, we don't I, know I, how I to gotta, turn that off in college football. I got to be honest, man. If they want to make an adjustment to the schedule, what they need to do is adopt Gator Dave's idea, which is when you make the Orange Bowl and you're not in the playoff, you play the Orange Bowl to kick off your next season with the teams that would have made the Orange Bowl anyway. And you say, look, so Florida would have played Oregon State in 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 the what was Las Vegas Bowl, whatever it was, that Florida would have play would play Oregon State to kick off the year and do it that way. And just say, look, it's not really a preseason game, but you're going to play an out-of-conference game with a team that's mildly close to where you are, at least from the year before. And look, sometimes that's going to be difficult because a team's going to have like an elite prospect coming in. Sometimes it's going to be difficult because you're losing an elite prospect that you had the year before. But if nothing else, it sort of it it crystallizes that the bowl game means something. Now, look, I know they used to, the bowl games are, are on new year's. And so it's easier for people to travel and all that sort of stuff. And maybe you do it at the home field of the team with a better record or something like that. But I just look at it and I go, there's so many ideas to increase revenue if they want to do it and sort of get rid of some of the games that are just meaningless. And like you watch the car quest bowl and, you know, Iowa's beating Kentucky on three pick sixes and you know, it's on again in the background, it's on, but man, if that was the game to kick off the season where you had Iowa and Kentucky playing each other and you can all of a sudden get sec bragging rights for that year. And you don't really know what each team has going in, but they all have to prepare for it. Like that's one of the things I love about college football is you got no idea what each team's going to be when they come out week one. And that's kind of cool just to have that idea that there's that turnover that you got to be able to turn it on right away. That if you're going to play at Utah, Oh, are we going to start Mertz to start the year? Even if we've got better, better options because we want the guy with experience and 30 starts on the road, like those sorts of questions start to really start to really crop up. And I like that about college football. Now, again, I mean, I'm sort of change averse too, so I get it. And if the money's there, they'll make the change. But um, you know, I, I just look at it and go, how much is ESPN really paying for Florida and Florida Atlantic or Florida and FIU or Florida and Florida A&M? Like, I, I just I, I don't think they're paying very much. And and so I don't think Florida's paying one of those schools a whole lot of money to come. Yeah. I mean, that's another thing, too. Uh, Staples was saying either the networks would rather pay to see those games in the spring if that meant Florida schedules a Pac-12 team in the fall instead. I'd rather see you play FIU in the spring game and not on September 1st or whatever. So I, I don't know that bowl game idea is kind of tough too, because a lot of those bowl games are tied to different, like the Rose bowl was created around that new year's day event out there in Pasadena. And there's a lot of tradition behind that. Well, you got 12 playoff games or you got 12 playoff teams. So find a way to play that one out in Pasadena. And then, uh, you know, have the fake Rose Bowl like they do, like they do with the Orange Bowl when it's not in the rotation. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, we'll do the Orange Bowl this year, but it'll be like the 10th and 12th teams in the country. Plus the 45 bowl games are not for the fans. They are for the people who are trapped on their in-laws couch for the week during, the, during <laughs> well, that week between Christmas and That is and true. News. Play them both. Play them at the end of the year and the yeah. beginning of the year. Yeah. Like make it a continuous score. <laughs> like if you lose 30 to nothing in the last one, like crap, we got to make up 30 points in the, in the season opener. Oh man, that'd be tough for the Gators this year. <laughs> the last three years, man, that'd be tough. If you combine the last three bowl scores, what's the, what's the score in that one? Will we down? Are we down about a hundred to ten? Oh, uh, like Grantham. Oh, <laughs> uh, Grantham. Oh, we'll still we'll we'll still blame Grantham. That's cool. All right, all right. Let's move on here to a dollar. Uh, 
we are going to launch next week. I've been working on a series of, I'm, I'm calling it a mini series, I guess here. It's called Tall Tales. And I've always been drawn to the actual football on Saturdays, obviously. I love the games, love, love breaking it down here every week as well. But the sport that has something over everything else. I mean, I, even, I just talked about being a big NFL fan. The history, the tradition, the stories that are like woven into the fabric of this game are just second to none. And over the last several months, I've worked on five different short stories in a series that we're calling Tall Tales. Uh, each story will zero in on anything from an entire game to a single moment or an individual that has shaped the history of Florida Gators football. I wanted to create a storybook feel for each of these. And so each episode has been animated in some ways. We have some interviews uh, that are kind of baked into each, each one at times, not all of them, a couple of them have them here, but the first one will is going to focus on the final drive of the 1997 Florida, Florida state game. Uh, otherwise known as the greatest game ever played in the swamp. Spurrier rotated Noah Brindice and Doug Johnson as the Gators buried FSU's second shot at a national title uh, in, in a row because they had done it in 1996 as well. The Gators had nothing to, to play for in terms of a national title in that 97 game, but FSU came in ranked number one to the swamp. And so I, I my family moved to Florida in 1998, and that's really when I started following the Gators closely. So I didn't I just missed this one growing up, and I always heard about it from people. I, I had a buddy of mine in his room. He had a big poster with the, the greatest game ever played in the swamp, 32, uh, 32 29. And I thought I, I had never actually gone back and watched the entire game from start to finish until I did this story. So it was cool to to dive in and just see how great that game really was. Yeah. It's interesting as we've been putting together the magazine, you know, it, it's become very clear that, and I think over the years as, as you've been participating in the site, it's become very clear that you and I have very different voices, that my voice is, is an analytically inclined one for a lot of different reasons. And you're much more of a storyteller. And I think that's a good combination, right? That, that we're not will and will too, or Nick and Nick too, right? That we have separate voices. And I think this is sort of your first real op. Well, you did some Charlie Pell stuff that I think really sort of emphasized that stuff a few years ago. And I think you're probably going to finish up some of that stuff too, in a similar vein to the, to the tall tale stuff. But um, it's cool to see this, right? This is a branching out into Nick as the storyteller. And I think that really suits you really well and suits the the skill set that you have and the voice that you bring to read reactions. So um, I'm really excited to see the, all the episodes you've, you've shown me a little bit of some of the, some of the ones that are up there, but I'm excited to see all of them. I think everybody's going to enjoy it. It's going to be something different, right? It's not going to be the same type of content that I put out there, but that's kind of the point is we don't want to put out the same content. We want to put out differentiated content. That's something that you're not going to get someplace else. So, you know, I'm sort of like you, it was the middle of 97 when I moved down in January of 97. And so I missed this one too. Um, and at the time, I think, you know, I didn't know where I was going to go to school um, and sort of became a Florida fan over over those first couple of years in, in, you know, 98, 99. And, and, uh, you know, so missed this, but the Florida, Florida state rivalry, especially when I got to Florida in 99 was, was at a fever pitch because of games like this. And so, mm -hmm. um, it's fun to go back and see these sorts of things where you sort of see the legend of Spurrier and a lot of people that are going to watch this lived through it. Some, you know, maybe weren't even alive when, <laughs> when this was happening, but, um, it's important to understand the history of the team and understand sort of what it was like back then. And, you know, I think it was bear Bryant talked about waking the sleeping giant at Florida and Spurrier certainly did that. 
And that Florida, Florida state rivalry. I mean, if one of those teams hadn't existed, you'd probably have like five or six national championship trophies in either one of those, in either one of those locker rooms, because there were a lot of really good Florida teams that lost to Bobby Bowden. And there were a lot of really good Florida state teams lost to Steve Spurrier. And uh, you know, there were opportunities for those teams, especially when you factor in the Miami and all the wide, right. And all that sort of stuff that happened with Florida state, like just the level of talent, all staying in the state at those three schools, um, really one of the best rivalries in college football history ever, Florida, Florida state. So that's a cool one to start with. And I'm excited to see um, the storytelling aspect of, of you starting to shine through. Well, we're looking forward to sharing this with everybody. It'll be launching. It'll be the next five Tuesdays. We're going to have it coming out the next five Tuesdays on our YouTube channel. So be on the lookout. This Tuesday will be the first one to drop the 1997 Florida, Florida state, the greatest game ever played in the swamp. Quick preview for you, for all of you right here. Football fans, this is Otis Boggs in Gainesville, Florida, with the head man of the Fighting Gators, Coach Ray Graves. Ray, I know you're looking forward to this season because you're going to play the real toughies in the league. I guess that's about as tough a schedule as we've had since you've been here at Florida. Yes, it is. And, of course, uh, where we play them is, is a little tough, too, playing in Atlanta, Georgia, and Auburn, Alabama, and Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Those are not the best places to win football games in the South. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Stand Up and Holler. If you're interested in more information from me and Nick, you can go over to readandreaction.com. You can like and subscribe our YouTube channel here at Read and Reaction, or you can go to patreon.com slash readandreaction to support us, get extra information, and we do ask anythings over there every once in a while as well. So check us out. Thanks for listening.